Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio! We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right. It's Friday afternoon in the UK, at least. Friday morning in the US, 4 p.m. here and 11 a.m. on the East Coast in the States. You're listening to Revolution Radio. My name is Dennis. The show is called Free Association. What that means is I make it up as I go along, basically. So I do have a couple of things that I want to talk about and a couple of things I want to play, but it can all change. So um, we'll wait and see what happens. Let me know in the chat room if you can hear me okay, because I think the uh, the sound at my end was a little bit iffy. And I'm on a public Wi-Fi in my living room which means if, if the wind blows in the wrong direction or it gets cloudy, I might lose the signal. But I'm going to do my best, and we'll we'll just play it by ear. I'm, I'm winging it today, so we'll we'll do what we can with it, and it it is what it is, and that's that's the way the show goes. Just a quick reminder before we get started: Revolution Radio is listener supported, so we do need your help to keep the the station running. We've got. Two studios running almost 24 hours a day. There's a lot of different hosts, a lot of different styles of shows. You'll find something you like. You'll find probably find something you dislike quite intensely as well. But that's the, nat- the nature of free speech. You, if you if you want free speech, you've got to give other people free speech. That's the that's the way it works. If that's not how it, the way it works for you, then it's not free speech. Anyway, so that's that's kind of where my head is. I've been I've been up and down this week. I posted a, a few things on the 
on the podcast version of Free Association, which you can find on Spotify and at all good pod, pod, podcast platforms. If you just search for something like Free Association Radio Show, Roundtable and Podcast, in any combination of those words should get you there. So I've been posting in the early part of the week material from Naomi Wolf from the Daily Clout, the reports that they're doing about vaccine injuries. And it kind of got to me a little bit by, by Monday evening. I posted a couple of things, listened to a couple of things that uh, were quite disturbing. I'm not going to play them here, but uh, you can you can find everything that Naomi Cloud Naomi Wolf does at the DailyCloud.io, and it, they're worth listening. Or you can find them on my on my podcast. But um, in the end, by the end of Monday evening, was it Monday evening? I think it was Monday evening. I'd had enough of the depression and the the potential genocide, so I had to just take a break. And uh, she, Naomi Wolf said something in, in a presentation she did for Hillside College, which was about being attacked by China. And, and it occurred to me that the mainstream narrative is China is the enemy. And now the alternative media narrative is China is the enemy, which means inevitably we're on course for a war with China. If both, if both, if if the people who criticize the mainstream are saying the same thing as the mainstream, then that, that probably means it's inevitable. But I decided that I would, I would uh, make an assumption about living in a, a multiverse, about multiple timelines, and because it was stressing me out, I've just decided to switch to another timeline where the war with China doesn't happen and where there's where there's pushback and where there's enough delay to stop it from going nuclear and all of those things. So all of the things that I was anxious about on Monday evening, I've now flipped into another timeline and I've let go of the anxiety. Uh, and uh, I think that's the way I'm going to continue to do things. So the the assumption about it being a multi-dimensional or um, multi-frequency universe, there's lots of different ways to describe it. Multi-timelines, multiple timelines is a way to describe it. So where Lenny, Lenny Time usually describes it. And, and I found it quite useful because I, I was in a place on Monday evening where I was feeling helpless. I felt like I couldn't do anything about it. But I'd forgotten that it's me that's creating it. And I've got a choice about what I create. So in my little bit of the world, we're on a timeline where the, the war with China doesn't happen. And that's the way I'm sticking to it. And I'm keeping this light today. I don't want to get too involved in, in anything too heavy. So I decided... Um, I've also been watching some live shows by Roger Waters. Roger Waters is on a European tour. Uh, I'm sure everybody knows Roger Waters was, was in Pink Floyd for many years. This is a solo tour where he's doing a lot of Pink Floyd material, and it's a big stage show. Uh, there's two or three shows now on YouTube. And I think that people are just recording them from the from the balcony, basically, and, and putting them up on, up on YouTube. 
But that's that's what I'm going to do this evening, just to take my mind off the genocide that might potentially be happening. Uh, so I thought I'd play a piece that I found about an hour ago on YouTube, which is about the um, the legal wranglings between David Gilmore and Roger Waters in the 1980s. So this is a fairly short piece. It's 20 20 odd minutes, 24 minutes, something like that. And it's about, about Pink Floyd's egos, basically. Percent off plus free shipping. Just follow the link below and use the code Vinyl Rewind at checkout. That's 20% off plus free shipping. Just use the code Vinyl Rewind at manscaped.com. In the years leading up to the recording of Dark Side, Pink Floyd were going through a bit of a transition. They lost their front man and primary songwriter, Sid Barrett, in 1968, and they were sort of stumbling through their next couple of albums, at least from a creative standpoint, as they sold relatively well in the UK. For the band, they were trying to figure out who they were without Sid. For bassist Roger Waters, he wanted to move away from what he called their space rock sound. He was also getting bored playing their earlier work on tour, especially the hits they had with Sid. He was eager to move towards more concrete and grounded songs about the realities of life. Roger was especially inspired by the rawness found on John Lennon's 1970s solo debut and wanted to try to capture that feeling in his own lyrics, while at the same time staying true to what made Pink Floyd's music so special. He wanted to go in a new direction, but he wasn't sure what that was, and so the band did a lot of experimenting at this time, trying different approaches to songwriting. I should mention that Pink Floyd's record contract with EMI afforded them unlimited studio recording time in exchange for a reduced royalty percentage of their album sales, so they had the luxury of experimenting in the studio and seeing if any of their ideas could lead to something interesting. One of these experiments was using everyday household objects to create music. This was something they had played around with on the song Work, but also something Ron Geeson and Roger experimented on the soundtrack to the body. But this project was different in that all the sounds came from objects. They didn't use any of their instruments. According to EMI tape operator John Leckie, he said they spent days working on what people now call the Household Objects album. They were making chords up from the tapping of beer bottles, tearing newspapers to get a rhythm, and letting off aerosol cans to get a hi-hat sound. They eventually shelved this project, but would later revisit it after the release of Dark Side. One experiment which did get released was the second LP of Amagama, where each band member got a quarter of the record to write their own song or songs. Also, in some ways, you could say the sweet Adam Hart mother was another experiment, this time working with composer Ron Giesen to create an orchestral score to fill out the nearly 24-minute song. But probably the craziest thing they did during this period was the time when each band member recorded whatever they wanted on their own and without hearing what the other band members were doing. Drummer Nick Mason said, we may have agreed on a basic chord structure, but the tempo was random. We simply suggested moods such as first two minutes romantic, next two up tempo. And since they were all playing in the same key, in theory, when they played all four tracks together, it should sound like something. However, according to guitarist David Gilmore, the results sounded awful. Absolutely awful. But it was through this experimentation that they sort of stumbled upon the song Echoes and suddenly things started to click. David later said, during that whole period through Amagama and Adam Hart Mother, we were finding ourselves. Echoes was the point at which we found our focus. Keyboardist Richard Wright said of Echoes, I think we found our feet. I think we found we can do this without Sid. 
The song took up the whole second side of their sixth album, Metal, released in the fall of 1971. And even if it wasn't totally apparent at the time, this album would later be seen as the beginning of a new era for Pink Floyd, a new direction led by Roger that would propel them to fantastic heights for the rest of the decade. And so the reason I bring all of this up is because Echoes and all the experimentation that came before directly influenced the music on the dark side of the moon. Shortly after the release of Metal, the band gathered at Nick's Camden home to discuss their upcoming tour in support of the new record. It was here that Roger presented an album that would become part of the tour. Basically, they would workshop a new record while on the road. He wanted the new album to continue in the direction of Echoes and create a suite of music all about the pressures and difficulties and questions that crop up in one's life and create anxiety. Some of this was inspired by the pressures they felt being in a band and touring so much, but it was also influenced by Sid's declining mental health. At Nick's house, the band came up with a list of things that weighed heavily on their minds, including getting old, religion, greed, death, and insanity. These would go on to form some of the core themes of Dark Side. Roger took the lead and started writing lyrics. David remembers Roger wanting to write it absolutely straight, clear, and direct, to say exactly what he wanted to say for the first time and get away from psychedelic patterns, strange and mysterious warblings. Roger said he wanted to try and drag it kicking and screaming back from the borders of space, from the whimsy that Sid was into, to my concerns, which were much more political and philosophical. There was also the pressure of time put on the band because the metal tour was set to kick off on January 20th, and they only started coming up with the idea for Dark Side towards the end of November. So they basically had two months to write something if they wanted to meet the deadline they set for themselves. Roger told Melody Maker, there's not really enough time between now and the 19th of January to perfect anything. To create an hour or something that's really good is very difficult. But according to Nick, despite the added pressure, this new approach was very constructive. In the past, they would come into the studio with a feeling of desperation, trying to put things together. But with Darkseid, it came together within a few weeks, and they had a version that was ready to be performed. Now, before I go any further, I just want to take a moment to point out the significance of what the band was trying to do at this time. It wasn't just that they were working on new material. They were developing a fully formed concept album to be performed live before ever actually recording and releasing the record we know today. Though they had tested new songs in front of a live audience before recording them, this was the first time they were doing that with a whole album. Their intention was to workshop the new material on the road and see how it developed from them being in the moment and the reception from the audience. I mean, in principle, what they were doing was basically what a new band would do in terms of gigging for a couple years and eventually recording their debut. But for a band like Pink Floyd, this was an unusual technique, but maybe that's what they needed. Whether they realize it or not, this approach may have been a way to get back to their roots as a band, and maybe this was the reset they needed in order to move forward and find their sound without Sid. In December of 1971, the band entered Decca Studios in West Hampstead to begin work on Darkseid. They started with unused pieces or existing snippets of songs, some from their previous projects, including a song that Richard wrote for Zimbrisky Point that would eventually turn into Us and Them. The music for Brain Damage was written during the sessions for Metal, but went unused. A super early version of Breathe can be found on the soundtrack to the film and Roger also brought in some of his rough home demos that would become the songs Time and Money. The work they did here were more demo tracks than formal recordings. They spent a lot of time jamming in the studio, exploring ideas with all the members contributing to the writing of the music. However, they were still having trouble with what direction to take the album. 
And then Roger came up with the idea of each song flowing into the next. David said, when Roger walked into Broadhurst Gardens with the idea of putting it all together as one piece with this linking theme he devised, that was a moment. Also, it's important to note that the project was still untitled at this time. Around mid-December, progress on Darkside was put on hold as the band traveled to Paris for additional filming of their Live at Pompeii concert film. Work picked up again starting in January and went through February of 1972 as they started formal recording at EMI Studios on Abbey Road. Now, keep in mind, as they were recording, they were also playing the suite live. So there's a lot of overlap going on, but I'm just going to go uh, start with the recording and then we'll go into the shows. But also keep in mind that EMI had just upgraded to a 16-track tape recorder, which Pink Floyd took full advantage of. By this time, the suite was known as The Dark Side of the Moon, a piece for sordid lunatics. The subtitle makes it more clear that the title is in reference to lunacy rather than the idea that we only ever see one side of the moon from Earth. Pink Floyd self-produced the album, and 23-year-old Alan Parsons came on as engineer. He previously worked with the band on their albums Amagama and Adam Hart Mother, but he also cut his teeth as an assistant engineer on the last two Beatles albums, Abbey Road and Let It Be. Alan was a very good engineer, and according to Nick, he also had a very good ear and and was a capable musician in his own right. This, combined with his natural diplomatic skills, helped enormously and meant he could make an active and positive contribution to the album. For Alan, he noticed a change in the band from the last time he worked with them. He said that in the past, they would come into the studio and have no idea what they were going to do and just start improvising. But the improvisation period had definitely become a lot more structured by the time of Dark Side of the Moon, mainly because they'd been playing it live. They didn't have to mess around with the compositions. In the studio, they tended to work on each song until completion before moving on to another track. But even so, the band was accustomed to taking long breaks in the studio, so this meant they could often be found watching TV when Roger's favorite football team was playing or when Monty Python's Flying Circus was on. But Alan continued to work, often creating rough mixes of what was just recorded while the band was taking a break. He also experimented with his own ideas as he was given some amount of creative freedom. Alan said, I didn't thrust my ideas at them. I would occasionally make suggestions or do things that felt right. This resulted in him suggesting a number of interesting ideas, but a lot of them went unused. One that did end up on the record was his suggestion of the clocks on the song Time. In fact, he recorded those clocks himself as a test for a quadraphonic mix. He also suggested Richard play piano on the great gig in the sky instead of the Hammond organ, which he had been playing during their concerts. Despite only getting credit as an engineer, he should really be seen as another producer, as his presence had a large impact on the direction of the final album. As the songs were coming together, the band was eager to test out the new material in front of a live audience. In fact, when you look at the set list from this period, these concerts were less about promoting metal and more about showcasing Dark Side. Most of the shows opened with the complete suite of Dark Side, or at least the most complete version they had at the time, and then they followed it up with a mixture of songs, and including some from metal and some older songs like Careful That Axe Eugene and Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. On January 20th, Dark Side made its public debut at the Brighton Dome. The show was going well until they got to money. The band had trouble keeping in time with the pre-recorded sound effect loop. <laughs> And then their PA lost power, which forced them to stop mid-performance. Mm -hmm. 
And when they finally got everything up and running again, they abandoned the rest of Dark Side and finished with a couple of songs from metal and some older fan favorites. The next night they played at the Portsmouth Guild Hall and the performance there went much smoother. This night also marked the first time they successfully played the whole album live. The band continued to play at concerts throughout the month of February, and it was also during this period that Roger wrote the song Eclipse just in time for Dark Side's London premiere at the Rainbow Theater. And even though Dark Side was in an early form that didn't quite reflect the recorded album we know today, it's remarkable how fully formed the songs were at this time. I encourage you to listen to the bootleg recordings from the Rainbow Theater. It really puts into perspective how quickly these songs came together. But more to the point, these shows were important because it proved to the band that their new direction was a success with fans and critics alike. Then on the 23rd of February, they were in France recording what would become their seventh album, Obscured by Clouds. Earlier in the year, director Barbara Schroeder asked the band to score his latest film. They spent about a week recording before they left for their tour of Japan. Then on the 23rd of March, they returned to France to finish the album. Overall, these sessions lasted only two weeks with the band highly focused and all working well together. Further proof that they were moving in the right direction. However, things hit a bit of a snag with Darkseid. Around this time, they learned that a band named Medicine Head were going to release or had already released their album using the title Dark Side of the Moon. So to avoid confusion, Pink Floyd changed the title of their suite to Eclipse, a piece for assorted lunatics. However, by the end of September, the band learned that Medicine Head's album flopped and it was safe for Pink Floyd to reclaim the title, but they dropped the subtitle at this time, so it became The Dark Side of the Moon. April and May found them on a lengthy tour of the United States and parts of Europe. Dark Side was really taking shape at this time, with the band continuing to refine the music and adding parts. Then on the 24th of May, they were back in London, recording at EMI for a month. During these sessions, they recorded the basic tracks of Time, Us and Them, The Great Gig in the Sky, and Money. And speaking of which, when they played Money live, they used a tape loop of Money sound effects that Roger recorded and put together. However, they had to re-record this loop for the album version because they planned on releasing a quadraphonic mix and they wanted the sound effects to encircle the listener. This required them to record the effects onto five separate tracks and then hand loop them in the studio using microphone stands to keep the tape tight in the machine. It was also during these sessions that saxophonist Dick Perry was invited to record on Money and Us and Them. Then most of the band, except for Nick, took a two-month summer break in Greece before touring the United States in the fall. They returned to the studio in October of 1972 and recorded Any Color You Like, Brain Damage, and On the Run, then known as the Travel Section, but sometimes called the Travel Sequence. It was also during these sessions that the four female singers recorded their parts for the songs Brain Damage, Us and Them, Time, and Eclipse. Then in November through December, they were back on the road, this time touring throughout Europe with some of the dates being a collaboration with a ballet company. Then the whole of January 1973 saw them splitting their time between even more ballet concerts in Paris and the recording studio in London. Here they finished tracking the rest of the songs for the album, as well as refining what they recorded from the previous year. Also, some of these last sessions were captured on film by Adrian Maben. This footage was used in the extended cut of their film Live in Pompeii. A late addition to the album were the snippets of voices interspersed into the songs. Roger's idea was to invite people into the studio and record their spontaneous answers to questions written down on note cards. These questions revolved around the themes of death, violence, and insanity, and the idea was for the speaker to turn over a card, answer the question, and then flip over another card, which would have another question that may or may not be related to the previous one. Some of the people who gave answers included members of the band's road crew, a handyman for EMI Studios, and their road manager, Peter Watts. 
Paul and Linda McCartney were recorded, but their answers ended up not being included because Roger felt they were just trying to be funny and not taking the questions seriously. It was also during these last sessions that Claire Torrey recorded her part for The Great Gig in the Sky. The story goes, as they were starting to mix the album, Alan thought the song still needed something extra. Since the band rejected his idea to include NASA astronaut radio recordings, he thought of bringing in Claire after he heard her sing. When she arrived at the studio, she asked the band what they wanted her to do, and they told her the concept of the album and then said to just improvise over the music. She did around four takes with very little direction from the band. In fact, when she walked back into the control room after recording, she didn't get any feedback and left thinking they hated what she did, but in reality, they loved it. Claire was paid her standard session fee of 30 pounds. However, years later, she sued, claiming she deserved half of the song's royalty payments because her improvised singing added enough that it should warrant a co-writing credit. The case was settled out of court in 2005, and she was given an undisclosed amount of money, plus co-writing credit on the song going forward. I also want to mention there was no hard drug use during the making of this album, only cigarettes, alcohol, and marijuana. I still think that most people think of us as a very drug-oriented group. Of course we're not. Justice. Roger later said, some of the interview bits done at the canteen of EMI are really funny. You can see we were just effing stoned. I was going through a stage where I was giving up nicotine, so I rolled a joint every morning. Now, it's notable that many of the songs feature experimental or interesting recording techniques, including the use of flange effects on both the vocals and instruments, as well as phase shifting and echo chamber, a spinning Leslie speaker, and traditional reverb. Richard also played his World Star organ through a Wawa pedal on money, and they also used three analog synthesizers, including a mini Moog heard throughout the album, an EMS VCS3, which is played on the songs Brain Damage and Any Color You Like, and the third one was the then-new successor to the VCS3, the EMS Synthie A, or it could have been an AKS. It's not really clear which model they used, and they could have used both in reality. But in any case, you can hear the Synthie A on the songs time and on the run. Darkseid is also notable for being the first Floyd album in which Roger wrote all the lyrics. Of course, the other members contributed to the writing of the music. Overall, the recording sessions were largely without conflict and highly productive since the songs were well rehearsed from all the touring. David remembers, we were stuck in a small room for days on end and we did work very well together as a band. Nick said, we approached the task assiduously, booking three-day sessions, sometimes whole weeks, and would all turn up for every session, everyone anxious to be involved in whatever was happening. There was an air of confidence in the studio. However, as the record came together, there were disagreements about how it should sound. David would later say, our working relationship was still good during the making of Dark Side. We had massive rows about the way it should be, but they were about passionate beliefs in what we were doing. One of the ways of resolving conflicts was for individual band members to make their own mix and then present it to the rest of the band for approval. And this usually resulted in the group favoring one mix over another, but even this was failing. David and Richard were pushing for a more traditional type of mix with the spoken word sections lower in volume, whereas Roger and Nick wanted to experiment more with the overall balance of the levels, especially with having the spoken word sections higher in the mix. David and Roger also went at it in terms of the overall feeling of the record, with David wanting a warmer, echoey sound, and Roger pitching a colder, drier mix similar to John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band album. In order to stay productive and to end the arguments between Roger and David, the band decided to bring in Chris Thomas to help with the mixes and act as a mediator. 
Chris worked as an assistant engineer to George Martin during the White Album sessions, and he even produced two of the songs on the record but did not receive credit. Chris intended to mix the album on his own, but Roger showed up the first day, and once David found out about this, he was there on the second. From then on, both David and Roger flanked Chris as the mix came together. In the end, both David and Roger were happy with the final result, and the album was finished by February 1st. Soon after recording was complete, the band played a few ballet shows in Paris, and then returned to the Rainbow Theater to her rehearse for their upcoming tour of the United States. The task of designing the album cover once again went to Hypnosis, the design firm run by Storm Thurgeson and Aubrey Powell. The duo got to hear some of the new music and were shown some of the lyrics so that they could get a sense of the themes of the album. Richard told them to come up with something smarter, neater, more classy, and not photographic. With this direction in mind, they came up with several designs to present to the band during their final recording session in January, and it was a unanimous decision to go with the prism design we know today. Aubrey said it took about two minutes and they were like, that's it, and went back to finishing the record. The inspiration for the final design came from an early color photograph of an actual prism that one of them saw in an old book of French photographs. At least one source also states that another inspiration came from a cover designed by Alex Steinwise, although I couldn't find either of the creators mentioning this, so it's probably just a coincidence. A graphic designer for hypnosis named George Hardy drew the design for the cover and supposed Supposedly, Roger came up with the idea of the rainbow of light continuing through the gatefold and onto the back cover, where the light spectrum returns to the prism and becomes white light again, thus making an infinite loop to the front cover, which I think is really cool. And this was a fun way for record shop owners to display the album when it was eventually released. This was the first Pink Floyd album to come with printed lyrics, which can be found on the inside of the gatefold. Also included were two posters and two stickers. One poster features a band in concert, and the other poster is an infrared photograph of the Pyramids of Giza taken by Storm. The two stickers are essentially the same design with a color palette swap. George Hardy illustrated the front and back covers, the gatefold, and the stickers. Stickers. Originally, Hypnosis wanted to sell the album in a box, but EMI said that would be too expensive. Now, some copies of the album came with a sticker on the cover identifying the album title and the band name. The prison motif also continued onto the record label itself, with early UK first pressings having a solid color interior. The first public performance of the album was for a press event on the 27th of February at the London Planetarium. Alan Parsons was in charge of producing the event, and he tried to get a quadraphonic playback system, but either EMI refused or they couldn't secure the equipment in time. Regardless of the reason, the band tried to stop the event when they found out the album was going to be played through poor quality PA speakers. When that was unsuccessful, most of the band boycotted the event, but supposedly Richard was the only one who showed up, although in later years he says he doesn't remember if he actually was there or not. There were also reports that EMI displayed cardboard cutouts of the band in lieu of their absence, but I have yet to find a photo of this. The album was released in the U.S. on the 1st of March, 1973, and then in the U.K. on the 16th. It was the last Pink Floyd album on Capitol Records in the U.S. as their manager had secured a better deal with Columbia Records going forward. In the U.K., the album rose up the charts quickly, but was kept off the number one spot by Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies. In the U.S., Capitol heavily promoted Dark Side, which helped to push album sales, and within a month of its release, it was certified gold, reaching the number one spot on the Billboard charts on the 28th of April. This was their first number one album in the U.S., but it would only hold 
this position for a week. Then in May, Capitol Records issued Money as a single and became the band's first top 40 hit in the U.S. In February of the next year, Capitol released the double A-side single Time and Us and Them. Beginning of March of 73 was the start of two major tours of North America, one in the spring and one in the summer, both in support of Darkseid. These concerts featured Dick Perry on sax and some backup vocalists. These shows were also full of special effects, including a hemispherical mirror ball, copious amounts of fog, a new light display designed by Arthur Max, a flaming gong, quadraphonic speaker effects, and sometimes a model airplane would be launched during the end of On the Run. It wouldn't be until 1974 when the now famous circular projector screen made its debut. They would continue to play Dark Side live in its entirety up until July of 1975 when they stopped touring to work on their next album, Wish You Were Here. One interesting byproduct of their success was that Pink Floyd found themselves in the mainstream and were attracting a wider audience than their previous tours, and thus they started playing in larger venues such as arenas and stadiums, especially in America. These larger crowds brought rowdy behavior with fans shouting requests at the band, which caught them a little off guard as normally their audiences were much more attentive and quiet. David said, it started from the first show in America, people at the front shouting, play money, give me something I can shake my ass to. We had to get used to it, but previously we'd been playing to 10,000 seaters where in the quiet passages, you could hear a pin drop. These rowdy interruptions would become more of an issue during their next tour in 1977. Alan Parsons received a Grammy nomination for his engineering work, but lost to Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions. In the years since its release, sales continue to be strong, keeping it on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart for a record-breaking 962 non-consecutive weeks. No other album has ever come close. It has since gone on to be recognized as one of the best-selling albums of all time, with some estimates claiming that one in every 14 people in the U.S. under the age of 50 owns a copy. Although, in my experience, some collectors I know own multiple copies of the album, which probably skews that statistic a little bit. Regardless, a 2013 estimate put total sales of the album around 45 million copies. And when you combine that with the iconic cover art, it's no wonder that this is one of the most recognized album covers of all time. For the band, the financial success of the album made them all very rich, but more importantly, they finally came into their own without Sid. Roger stepped up to be the main lyricist, and David really took on the role of lead singer on most of the songs. In past albums, he generally only sang lead on songs he wrote or co-wrote. Their next three albums dominated the decade and cemented them as one of the greatest bands to ever record. And that's how Pink Floyd made The Dark Side of the Moon, a remarkable record that just seemed to come to them effortlessly as if all the work they did was leading them to this very album. All right, everybody, that'll do it for today. I want to thank you all so much for watching, but I especially... All right, so that's um, the making of Dark Side of the Moon. And uh, the other piece I wanted to play is, let's have a look. Let me just get this set up properly for you. Uh, let's have a look. Uh, why Roger Waters left Pink Floyd, 80s solo album. So this is the one I was going to play first, and I played the wrong video, but it doesn't matter which order they're in, really. Since Sid Barrett's departure from Pink Floyd was its own video, I think it's best to do the same with Roger Waters leaving the band.
While the story of Sid's breakdown almost comes off like a Greek tragedy of a crazy diamond caught in the crossfire of childhood and stardom, this is mostly a story of egos and lawsuits. It's a battle of words that's still going on to this day between Roger Waters and David Gilmore. This is a very touchy subject. It's pretty much the point where Floyd fans split into two different camps. You're either Team Roger or you're Team David. If I'm being honest, I tend to drift more into the David camp, I'm a guitar player, but for the purposes of this video, I'm going to try to be as objective as possible and relay all the facts the best I can, though it's going to be hard because there's a lot of contradictions of exactly what went down. On the lighter side, it does give us a chance to focus on their solo albums from the time. Let's backtrack to 1984. With the final cut being their least successful album in over a decade, and no plans to tour, Pink Floyd's future was uncertain. Feeling creatively inhibited on the final cut, David Gilmour released his second solo album, About Face, co-produced by The Walls producer, Bob Ezrin. I need another outlet for myself. To, to be able to go out and work, make music. About Face sounds more contemporary for the times, and he made a very 80s MTV video for Blue Light. Though the song Murder was a reaction to John Lennon's assassination and a highlight. Then you you know I'm right, not to be confused with the Nirvana song, is at least partially about his arguments with Roger. Ultimately, I don't find About Face quite as good as David's first solo album, but it does have its moments, including a climactic guitar solo near the end of a song called Near the End. David also toured and significantly toned down the spectacle of the previous Floyd tours, focusing on the musical side of things. Despite inconsistent ticket sales, Dave was able to hone his presence as a frontman. Nick Mason joined Dave for the Hammersmith Odeon show, where they performed Comfortably Numb, and even Roy Harper sang Short and Sweet with him. Dave would also work with a lot of other artists. He would produce Dream Academy's record, which featured future Floyd bassist Guy Pratt. He worked with Brian Ferry, who also worked with Guy Pratt. Man, did Guy just play with everybody? And Kate Bush where they performed that Stranger Things song you're all sick of by now. Shortly after About Face, Roger Waters would finally release his debut solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, the same project he had presented along with The Wall half a decade earlier. It's actually set in real time, and the theme is mostly centered around the protagonist's relationship with his wife, not quite the Douglas Adams adventure as the title might suggest. The pros and cons of living with one woman within the framework of a family against uh, the call of the wild. It's an interesting idea for an album, but I don't consider the pros and cons of hitchhiking all that memorable musically or even lyrically. I feel even the final cut had more weight to the lyrics. In fact, there's a song called Go Fishing, which seems to lift the melody straight out of some song from the final cut. It does have pros and cons of hitchhiking. It is awful, let's be honest about it. Final cut was all right, but pros and cons of hitchhiking is terrible. And uh, I'm not, not a huge fan of Roger Waters' solo stuff, but it is what it is. He's on tour, as I said, uh, touring all the way with Romania, uh, France, Denmark, I think, as well, are all on YouTube at the moment. 
So I'm going to continue this on. Some nice guitar work with Eric Clapton sitting in on the sessions. He really gets to stretch out on the song Sexual Revolution, maybe the best song on the album. It's kind of weird that Eric played so much more on the solo record than David did on the previous Floyd album. He would also join Roger on the tour, along with future Floyd guitarist Tim Renwick. Unlike David's tour, Roger utilized similar theatrical elements to The Wall. Consequently, the show was very costly to put on, and some shows suffered from low ticket sales. I suddenly the realization has come home to me that nobody made any, any connections between me and those old Pink Floyd shows. Otherwise, they'd be buying tickets for this. Nick Mason says he saw Roger's show at Earl's Court and felt weird seeing Pink Floyd's material being played without him on drums. I mentioned before Nick had released an album in 1981 with Carla Blay and Robert Wyatt. He mostly busied himself with motor racing and collecting cars, though did cut an album with Rick Fenn of 10CC called Profiles. David Gilmour actually provided lead vocals on the song Lie for a Lie. It's kind of a generic 80s album, though I believe it was meant to score a short film Nick had been working on about motor racing, and he and Rick Fenn would continue to score films throughout the 80s. And what about Rick Wright, their estranged keyboardist? Well, he formed a duo with new romantic Dee Harris called Z with the 1984 album Identity, drenched with Fairlight synthesizers. You think Rick being a synth pioneer would really find his feet in the new wave era, but Rick himself would call this project a disaster, and yeah, I, I had a hard time sitting through this album. As for Sid Barrett, he apparently moved back to Cambridge after having lost all his money. No new music, no new anything. Apparently Pink Floyd was invited to reform for Live Aid 1985, organized by The Wall's star, Bob Geldof, but they declined. Roger offered to perform with his band, but only David performed on stage with Brian Ferry, along with future Floyd keyboardist John Karen. I combed through a lot of interviews around this time and found that David seemed somewhat open to doing another Pink Floyd album with Roger. If we do another album again, it will not be done like the final album was done. We'll have to achieve a better compromise situation between us. But Roger seemed much more dismissive. I don't see any future for the band. Why? Because we don't want to work together anymore. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Not really. No. Okay. This is where Roger starts to insist that he alone is Pink Floyd. On the final cut, he's the sole writer, he had become the lead singer. It's not an exaggeration to say the other guys had become glorified session musicians, except they could still challenge Roger's creative ideas. If you watch the EPK for the pros and cons of hitchhiking, he definitely infers that. My pros and cons show will be, is, is a Floyd show. Except Eric Clapton's playing the guitar and Andy Newmark's playing the drums instead of Dave Gilmore and Nick Mason. But everything else is the same. It seems Roger viewed Pink Floyd as something that needed to end so that he could further his solo career, much in the way the Beatles had solo careers after they formally dissolved their partnership. Apparently they had dinner with manager Steve O'Rourke, and Dave and Nick left thinking Pink Floyd would continue after Roger's tour. Roger left thinking they all agreed to break up the band. At this point, they should have just done a cover of Led Zeppelin's communication breakdown. According to Nick Mason's book, the final straw occurred when Roger told Steve O'Rourke that he wanted to renegotiate his contract with Pink Floyd in secret. Steve felt obligated to disclose this request to Dave and Nick. 
Well, Roger considered this a betrayal and wanted Steve gone. David and Nick said no. In 1985, Roger wrote to the record company saying that he was leaving the band. The band is over. That's the end of it. The work is there. It stands. It's, it'll be there. You know, it's recorded online. It's not the legend. It's not that important. In fact, it's important that it be destroyed. According to Roger, the actual reason was to avoid any legal issues that arose from Pink Floyd not delivering another album. And after all, there was no way they could make a Pink Floyd album without Roger Waters. Well, here we are. I mean, this one still boggles my mind. Like, no one on Roger's legal team advised him that this is a really bad idea. I mean, Dave had already released two solo albums with notable reception. Roger must have known that he was clearly capable of producing something without him. Regardless, Dave essentially said, all right, you can leave the band if you want. We'll just cut an album without you. And Roger said, you'll never do it. And well, I guess that gave him even more of an incentive to move forward. So, I mean, I have spent 20 years of my life um, working on building that name up. Even I see no reason whatsoever why I should give that up just because one guy says he doesn't want to do it anymore. I mean, if someone leaves a group or something, that the, the others normally get to carry on. David and Nick were now officially Pink Floyd, and they were planning to invite Rick back. I bumped into Rick in Greece on holiday that summer and uh, talked to him about the possibility of carrying on. Although there was a clause from his agreement to leave the band that prevented him from rejoining as a full member, so he would once again be a salaried musician. And I'm sure Roger was very diplomatic and supportive of his bandmates' new musical direction. I'm lying, he sued them. One of the most famous lawsuits in rock history. In 1986, Roger Waters went to high court to bar his bandmates from using the name Pink Floyd and called it a spent force creatively. The argument was made rather pompously, and, and I pre admit now erroneously, suggesting that because I wasn't in the band anymore, that the brand and band name should be retired. There was a lot of mudslinging in the press. It's very difficult to remain on good terms when someone's trying to completely fuck you up, you know. Honestly, this is where a lot of the contradictions in interviews come from. Like, there's this long-standing claim that the record company rejected Pink Floyd's initial cut of A Momentary Lapse of Reason, which Floyd fans now regard as fact. And looking up the source of this information, which sadly a lot of Floyd fans don't, I found out that this came directly from Roger, which Dave has retorted as a tissue of lies. Of course, I'm not sure how a tissue can hold lies. And for years, Roger would continue to claim that he was Pink Floyd, like saying he gifted the others writing credits on Dark Side of the Moon. Look, here's the thing. I acknowledge that Roger's contribution to Pink Floyd is enormous, especially his lyrics, and none of the other band members have ever negated that. But as somebody who has made records, I can tell you it is still a collaborative process. Even Prince had the revolution to bounce ideas off of. You can't relegate Dave's contributions as a bunch of rock and roll guitar solos. He's adding inflections to the melody. Rick is dressing the songs up with these sublime chord sequences. Even Nick is very involved in the production process of Dark Side of the Moon. Lyric writing is not the end-all determination of songwriting. Elton John never wrote a lyric in his life. Should we rename his entire catalog Bernie Taupin Records? 
But then you listen to the pros and cons of hitchhiking done without Pink Floyd, and like I said, it's just not that memorable. It's not bad, it's just clearly missing something. It would be a collaboration with Jeff Beck that would produce Roger's best album, but we'll get to that when we get to it. So long story short, there wasn't much of a case to be had for Roger claiming sole ownership of the band. There was no formal declaration of who the band must consist of, and in the public mind's eye, the members of Pink Floyd were kind of anonymous. Yeah, in retrospect, we all know who they are, but at the time, there was no internet to look these things up. Most of their album covers never featured pictures of the band. They didn't appear on MTV. Their faces weren't on the cover of Rolling Stone. They didn't even appear on screen for the wall film. The last time anybody had seen live footage of them was live at Pompeii. That was 1972. Roger Waters and David Gilmour just weren't John Lennon and Paul McCartney. In fact, the member who had the most recognition was Dave because he had been playing with other artists. And more importantly, Pink Floyd had already gone through this with Sid Barrett. I feel David Gilmour summed it up with this. Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd had been one Pink Floyd, and the, the Pink Floyd with the four of us, Roger, Rick, Nick, and I, had, had been another one. And this would be another, another version. Well, he's right. And I know a lot of fans will argue, oh, it's different. Sid was only there for one album. Roger was there from the beginning. Well, so was Rick, but Roger still made the final cut without him. Peter Green left Fleetwood Mac. Denny Lane left the Moody Blues. Peter Gabriel left Genesis. Brian Jones died, but the Rolling Stones kept going. Same with Dwayne Allman and the Allman Brothers, who had a lot of personnel changes over the years. It's not like there's no precedent for this. At the end of 1987, while Pink Floyd was already on tour, the lawyers eventually settled out of court on David's houseboat. Roger would retain the creative rights to the wall, along with the flying pig from the Animals tour. Wait till you hear how they got around that. And Roger would never appear on a future Pink Floyd album again. A couple months before the new Pink Floyd album, Roger released his second solo album in July 1987, Radio Chaos. Not to be confused with the evil organization from Get Smart. I never really sat down and listened to this album in full, and when I finally did... Well, let's just say it was very 80s. Though that is kind of the point of the album. Something of a conversation between this disabled genius using radio waves to contact a DJ played by Jim Ladd. Roger's gone on record saying he felt pressure to make something more commercial and wishes he had never made this album. Though honestly, I don't think it's that bad. I think it is a step up from pros and cons of hitchhiking. Some songs like Powers That Be did stand out to me. And I feel like the imminent threat of nuclear holocaust on four minutes leaves you with a much bigger impact than Two Sons does on the final cut. But Roger's tour didn't fare any better as he found himself in competition with Pink Floyd. I remember one particular night I'm playing in Cincinnati to about 2,000 people in a 6,000 seat you know, arena, and they were playing the next day to 60,000 people in the football stadium next door, playing all my songs. And unfortunately, the extravagant theatrics of the show went heavily into debt, and Roger would not tour again for over a decade. So with all that said, we've now set the stage to discuss a momentary lapse of reason. But the last thing I want to say is, I don't want it to seem like I'm making Roger the villain of the story. Even he himself has said he regrets suing Pink Floyd over the name. And I was wrong. Were you? Of course I was. Who cares? Being in a band is hard, especially... 
All right, folks. Um, uh, a lot of the people in the chat room. <clears throat> We've got a, a good crowd in there at the moment. Net Effect, uh, Lavender Streams, uh, Wally's in there, Dry Fly Guy's in there as well. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> yeah, my voice is starting to go. That's a good sign. So I'm, I've managed to step out of helplessness from Monday <clears throat> just by rearranging my head a little bit. It was a it was a tricky a tricky thing with a couple of assumptions. Uh, first assumption is that we're in a kind of multiverse with multiple timelines, and all it might it might just be that I need the belief system to get me out of helplessness, but. Now that I've discovered that that's what happens, at least I've got I've got a technique. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. It seems to me that it's probably just another way of describing different frequencies. Yeah, I don't know exactly how how you can. You've just got to use metaphor and analogy to to work this stuff out. But it seems to me that uh, when I talk myself into a corner, I usually find a way out of it. So I'm now living on a timeline where the, the future war in China doesn't happen and I'm going to stick with it. And uh, it's interesting that <clears throat> I, was, I was thinking about the, the Young Global Leaders Program, the World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders Program. They tend to attract artists and poets and writers and pe people who are creative, people who have strong imaginations, in other words. So they're, they're grabbing a whole lot of young people with vivid imaginations and high levels of creativity and then feeding them ideas. So whether or not they actually get involved in making those ideas manifest, you've got all that imagination pointed in the direction of the ideas. And it occurred to me that that's that's the process that we're in um, and we need to come up with an alternative which is a whole lot of creative people focusing on an alternative set of ideas that, that negates or basically makes, makes neutral the ideas coming out of the World Economic Forum so so I'm going to put that on my list of things to do, along with a conference about the future of money and a whole lot of other things that are on the list. Um, yeah, so we'll see how it goes anyway. Uh, you, as I said before, you can find me online. The podcast is quite active at the moment. I'm posting regularly to the podcast, and it, it's doubled the number of downloads that I was getting in March and April, so... It's making some progress, getting there slowly. It's very slow, but it's getting there. And uh, I'm going to have another conversation with a with a guy from Sunland Software City and see if I can come up with something on a reasonable scale that'll that'll generate some kind of creative project for me to do with them. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes it's all up in the air i'm open to all possibilities particularly now that i've discovered that, that there's multiple timelines available so now that i've recognized that 
I think that's another way to open things up. And imagination ultimately does create reality, so it might only be a small bubble of reality around me, but I can keep it I can, I can keep it sensible while the rest of the world does whatever the rest of the world does. We can only do this one person at a time, after all. You try and do it more than one person at a time, then you're interfering, interfering with somebody's free will, and that's not really the idea. You interfere... Just recognise people's sovereignty. It can only be one person at a time if everybody's sovereign. So that's the way I'm going to be doing it. But, so it's slow and it's careful and it's steady and it's it's an incremental thing that, that I'm doing, having conversations with people. And kind of giving people evidence for things a little bit at a time. I decided the, the sledgehammer approach doesn't really work that well. So I've, I'm going, I'm doing incremental conversations now and just letting people work things out as they go along. I'm not trying to do anything to change anybody's mind about anything really. Just expressing my own point of view in a conversation. That's all. So reaffirming my own sovereignty, recognizing the other person's sovereignty and letting it be the way that it is. And that way I keep my head straight and I can have a bit more fun than I was having when I was stressing about it. Anyway, that's, that's pretty much it for today, I think. I've enjoyed myself without being too serious about anything. And uh, I'm going to continue to do music shows for, well, I'll, I'll do all sorts of shows, but part of them will be music shows. So, because it, it gets me out of myself, it stops me from stressing about about eugenics and genocide and all the other shit that's happening in the world. Wars and rumours of wars and all that. So that's it for now. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. And have a good week. Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. There have been imaginative science fiction writers for generations. Be evasive. But that doesn't mean that they're telling the truth as opposed to fiction. I, you know, I'm aware of some archaeologists that have uncovered large uh, bones indicating giants in Virginia. Um, Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Um, there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, indicating that there were giants before the Nephilim. 
and sons of God, plural. They weren't talking about Jesus coming down. And, and no, no, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm Steve Crawford. Join me every Thursday night in Studio A at 6 p.m. Eastern for Factor Theory Live. Find us on www.revolution.radio. Great guests and great stories. What do you believe? I am Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the